the problem arise, you know, when 97 hits us because the, the property market crash and it did not crash just by a single digit. It's actually a double digit crash and continuously. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts of A Stotts Academy, where we apply finance principles to help four types of people, investors who want to better manage their stock portfolio, aspiring professionals who want to learn how to value any company in the world, business leaders who want to make their companies financially world-class, and even beginners who just want to learn how to implement a simple lifetime investment plan. Join the Academy at myworstinvestmentever.com slash Academy and get free access to the short course I created called Six Ways to Lose Your Money and Six Strategies to Win. This course comes from what I learned from all of these podcast interviews. Well, now on with the show. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guests, Greg O'Young. Greg, are you ready to rock? Absolutely. I know you are because we just had a nice chat and catch up. So let's get into it. I'm going to introduce you to the audience. So let me get that to you. Hold on. So Greg has held senior executive positions at various global banks in China, including Saxo, UBS, ANZ, Morgan Stanley, and State Street Bank. He has a solid track record pioneering, building, and managing technology centers in China that deliver innovative solutions and support digital transformation programs for incumbent banks in fintech. And my, that is such a big and important space. It has been for the last decade. Greg is currently senior advisor for Shanghai Fudan University, specializing in fintech. And he's also the co-founder of Financial Technology Talent Standardization Committee. He was also the China columnist for Shanghai Daily, Computer World, and various newspapers and magazines in Hong Kong and China. Greg graduated with a degree in computer science from the University of Westminster. He completed executive MBA program at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and he certified from MIT in artificial intelligence, Harvard in fintech, and Copenhagen Business School in digital transformation of financial services. He's also a chartered information technology professional, a fellow of the Hong Kong Computer Society, member of British Computer Society, Hong Kong Chamber of Commerce, and American Chamber of Commerce, Shanghai. Wow. Take a minute, Greg, and fill us in on a little bit of details about your distinguished life. Well, thank you, Andrew. I think it's really honor to be to be at your podcast show here. And I mentioned myself, you know, I, I originally from Hong Kong, and I have been in the financial industry for a long, long time, as you can see, you know, from my resume. And about fourteen years ago, I was fortunate to offer a post in China, and that's why I moved to China and stay here ever since. And it's been a, such a journey, that such a memorable journey in here, you know, setting up centers, not just on the work side, but also on the lifestyle. You know, basically I've witnessed the exponential growth of the economy, you know, in China for the last two decades, which is incredible. I mean, from the time, you know, I have to carry cash everywhere and even the ATM machine don't accept the foreign cards. I cannot use a foreign credit card or even my debit card from Hong Kong Bank, you know, Hong Shan Bank, you know, it doesn't work here. But within, you know, five to 10 years and everything has changed. And today I just carry a cell phone, go out to buy everything. And even my wife go to a wet market, you know, she doesn't carry cash. It's everything is, you know, the transaction is done by cell phone. So that's 
demonstrate, you know, how drastic the change has been for the last two decades. Yeah, it's interesting because I I'd never been to China until about roughly 10 years ago. And when I went, it just blew my mind. You know, as an American growing up in America, the way that the story was built for a young kid in America about China was built by politicians, of course. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, was, it wasn't a positive view. It was, you know, communist and this and that. And then I went there and I just saw a whole nother world. And one of the challenges I faced was how do you go to a very different country and not bring your preconceived ideas? And, you know, we all have a frame of reference that comes from our own society, our own upbringing. And having now lived outside of the U.S. for 29 years, I'm forced, you know, if I was to, to live by my American principles to the core, I'd just have a miserable life. And I'd think everybody's doing it wrong. And when I went to China and I kind of saw the success that was happening all around and the development that was happening all around that country, I just had to realize, you know, they're doing some things that are right. You know, every country has, you know, the wrongs and the difficult things that they're facing. But I was very impressed. And then to talk about the thing that you mentioned about the, the pace of development, I remember on my university where I did my PhD, you know, within, within one year, there was no yellow bicycles for getting around the university that you could use your QR code on. And then within one year, the whole campus and everywhere in the town was available to get on these bikes. And you just think the pace of adapting new technology is just unbelievable for the average American that's sitting in Cleveland where I grew up in that area. They just couldn't imagine how fast things are moving. And I just find that really, really something that people don't realize and I, someone asked me, why are they moving so fast? I said, well, I would say that Chinese people have a different level of urgency, but also when you have such a volume of people, you have to develop these technologies. Otherwise, you know, it's just going to be log jams everywhere. So the pressures on the system are much more than they are in other countries, I would argue. But any thoughts about that? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the pace is definitely extremely, well, super fast. It's beyond imagination. But at the same time, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, I think going back to your earlier question about, you know, when you first come in, you know, as a foreigner, you know, even though I'm Chinese, but, you know, ethnic Chinese and I'm from Hong Kong, but, you know, but it's a very different, you know, like Singaporean Chinese, you know, Hong Kong Chinese, they're all different, but they're, the DNA is Chinese, right? Mm. But there's a lot of similarity and the value, et cetera. But once I came in here, I think, you know, it's different. It's, everything's different, you know, especially in the early days, right? And I had this, you know, culture shock, you know, and uh, the first year it took me a while, even though I've been covering China for a while, but actually living here is very, very different. You know, like I said, the, the inconveniences and all this thing. And then, you know, people don't follow the queues, you know, <laughs> like in elsewhere and they cut the lanes and, you know, and so on and so forth, right? But, but when I step back and say, look, I mean, it's a developing country. Right. And even when I talked to my mom about this, that was in, in, in those days, I said, wait, you know, in the 50s, Hong Kong people don't actually queue up in the bus, you know, and the, waiting for the bus. They are everyone scramble into the, the bus. Right. Or people mm -hmm. spit on the floor, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's not that long ago, you know, but you got to step back and see where that stage is. Right. But then I look back and see the, the changes is like I said, it's not just technology changes. It's actually the civilization, the people are more civil than before, right? Mm -hmm. And even, even when people jump queues now, the locals will say, you know, go back to the mm -hmm. back of the queue, you know, and you don't need a foreigner to tell them off, right? And of course, you know, 
the biggest challenge in China, I guess, is the population. 1.4 billion people, and it's not possible, or it's almost impossible, to change everyone's mindset overnight. And that's why you have clusters of different developments, you know, all over China. You know, in、mm. Shanghai is a good example, or Shenzhen is another great example. You see, people are far more civil, well behaved than, let's say, in Anhui, as you're familiar、mm. with,、yep. or even going back to even further inland, because you know, a lot of people have not even been in touch with so many foreigners, and they have not been exposed to any. New way of thinking, you know, and and so on and so forth. That's why you have to cut them on slack, and you got to step back and say, look, I mean, they are catching up,、mm. and they are improving. But first, you got to solve the poverty first. And if、yeah. you are poor, forget about the mannerism, right? That's why they get food.、Mom. Exactly. If you're well fed, then you think about, oh, how can I, you know,、uh, get a better house, you know? And then when I have a better house, it's like,、mm, you know, can I do charity and go, you know,、mm. pay back society? Only it's just steps of. You know, a little steps that you know people need to take, and but I do believe that it is on the right track,、yeah. and and a lot of people have some a lot of misinformed about China. Definitely, they talk about no human rights and all this, right? But a lot of people don't don't even realize that you know if you bought the wrong house because of your own problem, and then if you keep on complaining to the government, eventually you may get away from it, not by paying it, you know, the property. And a lot of people don't realize that because the government is. Very cautious about taking care of the little guys, not the big guys. The wealthy guys, they don't, you know, yeah, they got, they pay taxes and all this, right? But the little guys are the ones who could create a lot of trouble for the society and become a chaos, or could become, you know, a、uh, civil unrest. And、yep. they do take care of them, and that's why you see that, you know, people are being taken care of, and that's why people support the government and lifestyles. You know, there's there's so many fascinating things, and I know for a lot of listeners, they don't you know necessarily have ne- never been to China or they don't know that much about China. And there's a couple of other quick things I would like to just talk about before we get into the show. And I think, you know, the first thing is when an American person says to me, "Oh, democracy, democracy," and I think, "How are you going to? Ma- how would you manage 1.4 billion people? The level of complexity of that is just." Off the charts, and so it's easy to say, "Yeah, we'll just do it my way." But you know, when you're on top of that, you know, it it isn't it isn't as simple as that. Number one, the second thing that you know, I I think about when I think about the challenges in China, is that it also made me think when I when I walked in and I saw, let's say, things can be pretty rough, as you said, you know, some provinces can be, you know, let's say from an American perspective or a British perspective, you know, not very polite or something like that. And you know, the first thing that we can think of is, oh, I wonder when they're going to develop and they should have better manners or whatever. And then I started have to think. I challenged the listeners to this podcast to think, well, why do we have these manners? Why do we act this way? Well, it's because as a society, we set up these structures of this is the way you act when you're sitting at a table, and you act very politely, and you put your you know your knife and your fork this way. Why do we do that? And I'm not saying I have the answer, and I'm not saying what's right or wrong, but I'm asking for each of us to question what we have been taught is right or wrong. And when we do that, and then we look back in China, and I thought to myself, you know, five thousand years of civilization. No,、yeah. you know, there's some credit there as to way things happen, and I think you can question 
why things happen, you know, why you've been socialized in the way that you've been socialized. It's very difficult to do because you've got to overcome, you know, what you think. Now, the other thing is that Thailand is nearby and Thailand is a democracy. And there was a politician in Thailand that got kind of in trouble when he said, I don't care what type of government, what form of government we have, what matters is the benefits that the people get from the government. Well, if you say that, that's going to raise a lot of red flags to a lot of people. But from my perspective, I went to China and saw that, in fact, the little guy gets a lot more from the government in China than they do in Thailand. But we're labeled a democracy. So that, you know, really made me just think about what is the function of government and, you know, what, what is it? And the last thing that I would end my little chat on China is after traveling around the world to many places and being out to villages and, and many different cities and all that, one conclusion I have is people do not want to fight. They want to live in peace. It's politicians from every country, from every tribe, from every group that, that fans the flames of fighting and people ultimately get sucked into it. And so if you go and you look at the world and you say, majority of people just want to live their life as a farmer, as a worker, and not have to deal with you know, violence, then it also helps us to remember to stop putting too much faith in politicians because they are the ones that start fights and start wars. So those are my last comments on it. Any, any comment you would make? No, I, I agree, you know, everything you said about this. And mm. I think, you know, it's, uh, we just wish, you know, we're living in a more, far more complex world than 20, 30 years ago and uh, far more challenges ahead of us and uh, new challenges. And I just hope that, you know, we, the government, all of the governments, you know, have maintained a rational mind and, you know, and actually do take care of the people. And mm. I do, I don't believe people, you know, have good intention. And I think that's a good start, you know, yep. to when you start negotiating and then try to work out solutions rather than creating, you know, uh, uh, false images, et cetera. So, so I think, you know, we, we still have a long way to go, but I think, you know, it's not something that we can solve, but I think, you know, for as long as we can influence other people that, you know, or inform other people with the right information. And hopefully this could help other people to base on the better information and facts to make that decision. Yep. Yep. And ultimately, we as a people across the world have to work for peace and have to want peace. So that's critical. Well, that's a great introduction to China, to yourself, so many different things. I appreciate the time, but now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. I myself is actually a very conservative investor, you know, and I always adopt a buy and hold sort of strategy all my life. And so maybe because of, you know, my upbringing, you know, by trade, I've been always been working in banks and the risk appetite is always something that I looked in first, right? And secondly, you know, it's because we work in bank, you know, you know, there are certain rules that you need to follow. You cannot just speculate stocks and everything. You got to apply, you know, with your bosses and then you, you need to, you know, you need to get that approved and then you, there's a certain lock-in period. So by the time you actually get everything approved, right, the stocks are gone, you know? So, you know, so, so basically, you know, it's, uh, it, it sort of forced me into that mentality as well. And so, so I think, you know, that's why I touch with by, by and large myself, you know, my own investment so far has been 
relatively okay, you know, and because I'm not an aggressive investor, you know, usually mutual funds, money market, you know, property, et cetera. I mean, it, I, I still take a very, very cautious mind about that uh, risk averse, you know, sort of approach. And the story goes uh, today. It's actually the main story. It's actually my family where I think my, my family is actually very conservative, just a middle sort of middle-class household, you know, in Hong Kong, you know, and just, just a regular family. And we're not really wealthy and so on. And then my parents are from humble beginning and they earned a set, you know, a lot of, you know, the savings, you know, throughout, you know, their career. And I think, you know, it's always been like this, but things change, you know, in 1997. And I think 997 for some, many, maybe many people who don't know, you know, was that, you know, 997 is actually the Asian financial crisis. It was the time when the George Soros actually tried to attack the different currency, the Asian currencies, and that causes the tsunami, you know, in the entire Asia economy. And it brought down a lot of, the, you know, basically the economy, you know, from Thailand to, you know, Malaysia, Singapore, everywhere, right? And finally, it also hit Hong Kong, but fortunately, Hong Kong actually defended pretty well. They did not unpack the US dollar at the mm-hmm. end, but it causes a lot of financial issues, especially to the households. And it causes a market crash. And basically, not just a stock market crash, but also the housing market crash. So the story went that my family actually started to do some investment, additional property investment before 97. That was about 95, 96. And that was at the height of the, you know, before, just before the bubble burst. And for, you know, you know several reasons, you know, our family need to invest in another property. And then because we could not raise funds, so we have to remortgage our current properties and some of the properties should be paid off already but because of this additional investment we have to actually remortgage that means we have to borrow more money from the banks and we have to borrow at the high time because at uh, not just the interest rate is high but also the property price was you know was very very high it was a record high and so we did that and for one year it was okay you start the business etc cetera, etc cetera. and then the i think the the problem arise you know when 97 hits us because the, the property market crashed and it did not crash just by a single digit. It's actually a double digit crash and continuously. And if you look back, right, the entire 97 Asian financial crisis, it lasts for almost like eight years. And it's a continuous dip for many, many years. And so within two years, you know, the property price went down like 40, 50%. And that was harsh. And that's why, at, and, and of course, you know, if you owe money to the bank at that time and the banks will, will be quite worried. They worry that you won't be able to pay off. So they will call loans. And when they call loans, then you have to pay back the remaining of the mortgage or whatever that you have borrowed from the banks. And, you know, that's not, no small business. It's actually the, the banks actually knock on your door and say, look, you know, Mr. Young, you need to pay off this debt, you know, and we will not lend you any money anymore. So this is exactly what happened. And so, you know, we have to struggle and then start selling the properties at a much lower price than before. Mm. And yeah, it, you know, the whole ordeal took us like three years. And then we finally sold off a lot of the properties and uh, including some of the properties that we hold before. And we experienced substantial loss in the family assets over the three years. And mm. uh, basically that was a, a terrible moment for the family. And of course, you know, it tore the family apart and, and people, you know, arguing, and you know, why did you do the investment? You know, I wasn't really involved in the decision, but 
still, you know, it was uh, a painful moment. And uh, you can imagine for any family to do that. And just to give the perspective, we weren't the worst because there are a lot of people actually commit suicide, you know, during around 97 because, you know, they couldn't pay off the debt and they still owe money, et cetera. And people actually took their own life. And, yep. and that was a very, very sad moment in Hong Kong's history. And closer, you know, we had a family friend who is actually a lawyer, you know, respectable lawyer in his 60s. And he actually did a lot of over leverage as well. He actually remortgaged and he, he basically did not pay by cash, you know, for all the property. He only left, I don't know, 15 properties or something like that. And then, and then at the end, he had to sold all of them or return all the assets to the bank. And he lost his entire savings. And also because of the bankruptcy law states that, you know, as a legal profession, you don't hold that license anymore. You have to give up that, you know, you're basically no longer a uh, licensed lawyer. If you've so, been declared bankrupt. Yes. Yeah. And, and you can imagine, you know, in, your, in the 60s and you lost everything, how to start all again? You know, and I, I don't know what happened to him afterwards. And uh, it's, it's my, uh, actually my mother's friend, but uh, I can not imagine, you know, he, and he's not alone. It wasn't a lot. I mean, it was a lot of people like that in Hong Kong during that time. And that's why in that was a real, the darkest moment, you know, in Hong Kong's history. And, and what's worse is that, you know, for some people who may remember SARS, the virus that hit Hong Kong was around 2003. Mm, and yep. like adding fuel to the fire is actually, it hit rock bottom. Hong Kong's economy hit rock bottom around 2003, you know, yeah. after, you know, after this, you know, a couple of years after 97, the Asian financial crisis, and then came with SARS. And actually no one ever, you know, went to see property or to buy anything. Even when we went to a restaurant, I still remember when my wife and I went, went to a restaurant and they gave us a 50% discount. It's un unheard of. Yeah. At the restaurant, you walked in and they said, I will give you half, you know, <laughs> it's everything's half price in the restaurant because there's no one actually in the restaurant. And that's why I, I think that was really a very, very serious financial crisis that hit Hong Kong hard. Oh, man, there's a lot to, to think about about that. But let's just review, first of all, what are the lessons that you learned from that experience? I think first is that, you know, you always need to understand what you can afford and what you cannot afford. Leverage or borrow money, you need to understand that you have to pay back. Just like credit card, you know, you, mm. you can use your credit card, you know, you can, you know, apply for, you know, beyond a maximum uh, limit, but at the end you have to pay off. And if you don't pay off the interest rates and there's a very high interest rate and you, you've got to calculate that. You cannot just, you know, think that, you know, everything is great. I have a salary. I still get a paycheck tomorrow, you know, or next month. And then, yeah, I can, you know, I can live on credit. You can't because the world is not the same anymore. And I think, you know, based on the experience, I would say, you know, I think the biggest impact to me, my especially investment philosophy is that, you know, know what you can afford before you make that decision. Yep. And all the other thing is it, probably and one more thing that tie with the same philosophy is that even if you buy property, if, you know, a few years later, you're being called on, you would have that cash to pay back. Mm. And, you know, ever since 97, I always hold that philosophy. I will never buy anything that's beyond my capability because you don't know what's going to happen next year. Your job will be lost tomorrow and the economy will go down the drain tomorrow, just like COVID, right? And all of this could happen. And everyone say that property only go up and property price only go up. That's nonsense. Mm -hmm. I've been the, I was working in Japan, you know, I happened to see that dip 
And then when I lived in Hong Kong, I saw that dip. And that's why in China, whenever I talk to the young people, I said, you know, don't count on it. You think the property price will only go up? No, it won't. Yep. It will come yep. down. You know, it will mm. come down, you know, so. All right. So let me summarize some of the things that I take away. I mean, I lived through that crisis. I was in Thailand in 1992 and then started working as an analyst in the stock market in 1993. And then in January of 1994, the set index in Thailand hit 1789, its peak. And that was, you know, fantastic times. It was exciting times. Actually, from 1985 until 1995, all of Asia was just going through an absolute boom. The idea of being able to tell someone that, you know, this could crash or something, you would be laughed out of a boardroom if you went and told them that, you know, what if, what if uh, economy only grew by 1% or something like that? Everybody was in that mentality. And the stock market in Thailand fell 90%. And I know in many other countries also during that time of the 97 crisis, it fell massively. And when you factor in the currency devaluation, it actually fell 95% for, let's say, a U.S. investor. And in fact, the U.S., the Thai stock market is still not back to where it was at the prior peak. We're talking about almost 25 years. So get real, folks. If you're listening in right now, remember, crashes do happen and they can be massive and they can take years for them to recover. And I'm thinking particularly about the U.S. where I believe, you know, there is a very, you know, the market is being propped up. The second thing that I, that, you know, you remind me of is when I was a young guy, my first 10 years as an analyst was as a bank analyst. So I was looking at the banks and balance sheets and going through the boom time and then the crisis and then the recapitalization. And what I learned from that is that almost every economic crisis is a property market crisis. It starts with property. And part of the reason is because property is the ultimate collateral that backs the loans. So one of the reasons why it's very important in China in the past to keep that property market high, because if that property market starts to fall, the ability to collect and get back the money that you've lent becomes very difficult. In fact, I was in China not too long ago talking at a CFA event, and I was driven from the airport into the event by a woman who, who worked for a government agency that, that buys basically bad assets in China. And I said, you must be really struggling right now. I said, no, we're making money. And I realized, of course, in China, you have the ability to set the pricing of the transfer of that asset at a relatively low price, number one. And number two is that the property market was rising. So as long as you got it at a reasonable price, you waited a little bit, you could sell it for some profit. But if that property market falters, that's a disaster. And that brings me to the third thing I would take away is that the number one risk in business and in life is debt in my opinion. It can take you down just when you don't expect it. There's other risks, foreign exchange and all that stuff, but ultimately the number one risk is debt. And from this, what we learn from your story is that do not get overextended. And in the world of finance, we teach, oh, there's an optimum capital structure where you're going to have a certain amount of capital. Throw that out the window and think about if you're going to borrow money for yourself or your business, just borrow a small amount. You don't need to borrow a huge amount. Now, you may have slower growth, but you're protecting your wealth over the long term. And that brings me to the last thing, which is about interest rates. The most important thing about interest rates is that they should be set by the free market. Why is that? Because interest is the price of risk. And when you distort the price of risk, you cause tremendous distortions in the economy in your country and global economies. And that's what's happening in the U.S., 
That's what's happening around the world when we try to control the interest rate. Right now, I listened to you know one of my nieces just got a loan. She bought a house in the middle of this crisis because she could borrow money at three percent, thirty-year fixed. You know this type of very extremely low interest rate causes malinvestment that we'll be cleaning up for decades to come. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, I highly recommend that you listen carefully to Greg's story about the impact of debt on a particular family. Because ultimately, these kinds of losses happen. It's same thing in Thailand. Thailand actually was the beginning of it and the epicenter of it. But we had people that jumped off buildings, people that shot themselves and killed themselves because of the pressures that debt put on them. So, anything you'd add to that? No, I think you know, you know, I think people need to keep the emotional away from from investment very often. I think you know it. It's difficult. I think you know, just like uh, there's a story, right? You know, in 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 Hong Kong a long time ago, and、uh, heard this over and over again. You know, in, in Hong Kong, you know, people are so into speculation, and they may not listen to analysts, they may not listen to the bankers, you know. But you know, when he was queuing up in a supermarket buying, you know, household things, you know, and then the a lady in the fifties, you know, told her that you know there's a you know there's a the stock coming in, you know, it's、uh, you know you should buy, and then you know. They may listen, you know, and then they they go into the you know the broker and then you know place the order and 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 it's just that you know very often it's just that you know even I told my wife you know when you buy the stocks I mean you know have you actually done enough homework about the stock I'm always a fundamental guy you know I always、mm-hmm. look at fundamentals and then like I said you know buy and hold and then I look long term but of course I do speculate sometimes、mm-hmm. but only when I can afford it because I know the technology sector well and、I、know what sort of stock that is this this company is going to. Big, big, you know, and then I would just buy and then leave it there, you know. If I lost it, so be it, you know. And、yeah. and again, it's that I can afford it, but it's not like a casino that you walk, you 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 go all in and then you know you you just you're just waiting to kill yourself, you know.、Yeah. I think you know there's something that you know over and over again, people just seem to be driven by emotion rather than rational, you know,、um, mind, you know, when when you know when when they're do dealing with the investment. And I think a good lesson in this is the idea of mental accounting, and it's a very valuable tool in the behavioral finance, you know, arsenal of tools. And that is, if you really feel like you've got to gamble a little bit, you want to play, you want to try to invest in this or that, do it with ten percent of your money. Exactly. Separate that money so that you're you're segregating that into a separate mental account and have fun, and you know, over five years, see how much you got. And in these two different accounts, one building it in a fundamental, you know, low risk way, and another one by, you know, having some fun. And you'll probably see, after five years, that the one, the ten percent, probably went to zero. <laughs> But not always, not always. All right. So based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I think it's the, it's the same message. Afford what you can invest. I think as simple as that. And you got to do your own calculation, and you got to know what risk appetite that you have. I mean, no one, no one can tell you except yourself. Not even the banker.、Mm. The banker want to sell you something, especially nowadays. I don't trust the bankers at all. You know,、yeah. they're given a quota, they're given the mandate, but you have to do your own homework. You know yourself far better than anyone else, right? Not even your mom know you better, better、yep. than yourself, and, and、yep. that's why you you got to know what, what's your risk appetite and then what you can afford and what's your long term goal for that. Yeah. That whether or not you can, you know, put this investment aside for ten years or five years or one year, and not worrying about it, you know, even the loss. And I think that, you know, this is something that is, 
it's a bit of common sense, really. It's a great point too, that I think everybody needs to listening needs to think about is that the food companies are going to sell you bad food and the, the, you know, government may sell you bad ideas and someone else may sell you this and a, a bank's going to sell you, you know, stuff to make money off of you. Ultimately, there's something that my mother used to say to me. And I know in the old days, they said it and that is, I think it's a caveat emptor, which means buyer beware. Ultimately, it's your responsibility and, and no government can ever fully protect everybody. They try through regulations and all that, but in the end, ultimately, you are responsible. Well, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Ah, I think my, my number one goal is actually we're exploring my next adventure. You know, I, I sort of uh, left my previous company, you know, a couple of months back and then uh, and then took a, re- a really good break and did a lot of interesting things, including the podcast today. Mm. <laughs> so very, you know, try something different and then do a teaching and then do learning. And then, you know, probably the next, within the next 12 months, I'll be doing something different. And that's why I'm sort of getting ready and prepare for my next adventure. And I think, you know, but, but one thing is that, you know, it's uh, you always have to keep yourself excited about things, you know, and, and that's why I always advise people not to retire. You can never retire. You know, anyone need to have a passion. You need to have a passion about, you know, anything, you know, it could be sports, could be, you know, some interest of yours and you learn something new every day and then keep yourself occupied, keep yourself motivated. And and it'd be great if that turns into income as well. Right. But, but the thing is that keep you thinking, keep, keep you motivated and then, and you won't be disconnected from society. I think that's another thing that a lot of old people get conned. Or, mm. you know, and uh, by, by people in the streets, you know, or, you know, and because they're so disconnected that, you know, they're lonely, et cetera, you know, but if you, you know, if, if you always keep your mind, you know, fresh and look at new things and paying attention, then I think, you know, you, you'd be fine. Yep. I have a book on the shelf behind me and it's a book written by my grandfather and he wrote a few different books, but this one was his final book that he wrote. And in the book, there's a, a little handwritten note and it's from his publisher. And it says, you know, congratulations, Charlie, my grandfather's name. Here is, you know, the first book off the printing press of your new book. Well done. I hope you're relaxing and enjoying, you know, and that was it. And the date of that letter was about one week before my father, my grandfather passed away. Wow. And what I learned from that is he, he lived to be 87. And he really worked to the last days. And I thought to myself, that's what I want. I want to be doing the things that I love. And then one day, you know, I'm done. So, yeah. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash academy to get access to my short course, Six Ways to Lose Your Money and Six Strategies to Win. And as we end, Greg, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into <laughs> your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I just, you know, I'm glad that you know, I shared a story with people here. And uh, I think, you know, people deserve to understand what the real world is like and what's better to share a story a real story that you know uh, even though it's a bad story you know it's a bad investment i think you know it's uh it helped people to make the the right choice going forward and i'm super glad to be here
Yeah, we're happy to have you. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is Andrew Stotts, your worst podcast host, saying I'll see you on the upside.